0: my friend Citadel, who I have this custom relationship with, and I'm just going to fill all of these priority orders with them. They're going to sit at a higher priority of packet than any normal person coming from the source chain. It doesn't matter what order they submitted to them. It doesn't matter that they were later in the queue. I'm going to fill them on the destination side because I'm more economically incentivized to do. I think you're going to end up with a world that potentially is a worse financial system than the world that we have today because of a lot of this. And so I think if you're going to go down that route, you should care, deeply, deeply, deeply about the properties of the underlying messaging layer and I don't think enough people do right now.
1: Hey everyone, this episode is brought to you by Say, the blazing fast parallelized blockchain which is unlocking Solana-like performance for the vast ocean of ETH devs out there. Now, you're going to be hearing all about Say and their new V2 upgrade but if you take away one thing, the EVM is here to stay. There are some problems with it which we're going to get into later in the episode but Say and especially their V2 upgrade is helping solve that. So thank you very much Say for making this episode possible. Hey everyone, this episode is brought to you by Uniswap, delivering the best on-chain trading experience in crypto, period, bar none. One thing I want to call out is... Uniswap extension. So say goodbye these days of these annoying uh, sort of pop-up wallet extensions. You lose your place trading. You have to open it back up. Uniswap now has a nice, sleek sidebar that persists no matter where you are on the web. It's much easier to use. If you click the link at the bottom of this episode, you can join the waiting list. And I'll see what I can do to get you moved up that waiting list. But definitely go click the link. Check it out. Alright everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views and they do not represent the views
2: of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, Nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode.
1: All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. This is a very special episode, which has been in the works for a long time. Uh, Very excited to Introduce my co-host for this season, Art, and today we are joined by Brian Pellegrino of Layer Zero. Brian, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks so much. Happy to be here.
1: Yeah.
2: This is going to be great. Thanks for,
1: yeah, thanks for setting this up, Mike. It's going to be great. Yeah. I've. Um, hey, this is this is my pleasure, and frankly, uh, I'm just going to do my best to almost stay out of your guys' way. I think in terms of uh, this is the interoperability episode, guys. So if you've been following along with us for this entire season, this is of course the multi-chain endgame season, and what. We've been asking ourselves, right? Is trying to update our mental model in terms of how this uh, these many different blockchains are going to speak to one another, and obviously the core concept there is Interop. So, basically, for listeners in terms of an agenda here, what I want to do is kind of tease out from a high level, uh, Brian, your perspective on what this multi-chain endgame is going to look like. How are all these different um, hundreds or thousands of it, or millions of chains going to ultimately end up speaking with another heart? Going to ask the same of you, and we're going to try to tease apart. Uh, The parts that I think where you guys agree on, which despite, you know, some of the spirit interactions on Twitter, I think there's a lot of agreement actually in both of your worldviews. And then I also want to get into the parts where you disagree and maybe dive in a little bit deeper there. So Brian, why don't we give the floor to you first here, Just, just to start off, can you sort of starting at a high level? I mean, where do you think we ultimately end up in terms of this world of hundreds or thousands of millions of chains? And, you know, how are those chains ultimately going to end up speaking to one another?
0: Yeah, I mean I, I again so so we try we try to stay pretty unopinionated in terms of what the end outcome will look like for us it doesn't matter if it's literally a thousand completely orthogonal layer ones uh or like ethereum only as a settlement layer in a ton of layer twos uh, i think the goal for layer zero is to build Uh, the lowest level possible primitive of the highest possible utility, right? Like that's the function, that's the framing we use when we think about the world. And I think when you think about that, you would think about like, how how should that thing actually be built? So if these things, uh, you have a a bunch of random state machines or like execution environments that exist, uh, how should they talk to each other? What should that look like? What properties does that transport layer need to have? Uh, I think like those are the things we care and focus on, and like very uh, strongly opinionated in terms of like what properties that layer needs to have in order to like achieve kind of the end state that I think all of us want. Um, so I you know I does I don't think it matters what that is whether it's a thousand or a million or, or literally just ten. I think you need the co communication no matter what.
1: Yeah, you have this. You have this really great analogy, Brennan. I've heard you describe sort of the birth of. The internet and comparing it to uh, the development of crypto as it is today, right? There was kind of like in the beginning, there's kind of, you know, little computer clusters, whether that's at UC Berkeley, and then there was ARPANET, and those things didn't really talk to one another. And even in the early days of the internet, right, you had these sort of competing corporate intranets where these corporations were trying to put everyone on their same uh, structure. And I've heard you compare layer zero, the protocol, almost to sort of the the most open sort of permissionless uh, thing that ended up winning, which was TCP, IP or TCP IP. So can we get into that a little bit, like talk a little bit about those, that kind of like early days of the internet. How is that similar to where we are today? And then like, where would layer zero sort of fit within the sort of analog internet context?
0: Yeah, sure. So yeah, early days, we had a bunch of intranets, right? Which just distributed execution environments. You had DARPA, you had Stanford, you had all of these different clusters, right? And if you wanted to take some data and process it. You want to do some computation. You literally take your floppy disk and you would like fly to Stanford and you'd pop it in and run it. And then you'd have, have your results back. Right. And then eventually we invented this very nice stack, the internet stack and allowed these things to talk to each other. And that, you know, basically became the internet and the lowest, like the primitive of the internet is effectively a packet. It's just like, do some compute on chain a, Take those bytes that are generated from that compute, move the bytes, and then like do something with those bytes on the other side. Layer zero is arbitrary contract invocation with the bytes array. It's invoke a contract here and generate some bytes, move the bytes, and invoke a contract on the destination chain with the bytes. And so, uh, I think you know that is effectively a transport layer. And so when you when you walk down like what properties do you want that to have, that's that's where I think it actually becomes very interesting because I think. A lot of the space was built on like you you like immutable permissionless censorship resistance right like those are the three primary properties that I think most things in the space were built around, and I think when you talk about like how you actually build that layer and what it means, and then we can walk through this uh, throughout the episode because I think it's it's going to come up quite a bit. There's so many problematic structures that you get into if you lose any any of those three properties, and I think for us the goal is again like like. That primitive is all that we want, like it's layer zero it's it's not trying to be uh, you know CCIP is is a dumb protocol. It's incredibly powerful. Layer zero is meant to be like reasonably dumb in the sense that it doesn't add a lot into an individual packet, right anything that you can do on any blockchain, any amount of bytes that you can generate that can be processed by another blockchain, so like the two blockchains are compatible in terms of like size of uh, uh size of payload um you can do over layers zero. There's there's nothing added there's no restrictions there's like all of that is there and then i think it's really about that how you build those systems that matter so much um and i think for us it's it's really and again i think i think we should get into this but we really try to focus on pure infrastructure and i think a lot of other people are focusing on like becoming a service provider and like you talk about early internet like microsoft i you know everybody had their own version uh the information superhighway there are all these different privatized versions of of trying to basically make this uh and the thing that one was the thing that was uh was was both uh most open and uh, least least like a service provider let's say least like a privatized internet
1: uh, i i want to hard turn it over to you in a second here but Brian could you say just a couple more words about that for folks in the audience when you say the difference between layer 0 trying to provide infrastructure versus others that are trying to be a service provider. you dive into what that means a little bit more?
0: 100%. Like when we built Layer 0, there were three, those three main tenants: immutable, sensors are persistent, permissionless, right? And so what that means is when Layer 0 deploys an endpoint, that code is entirely immutable. We can never change it. And most importantly, we can never remove it. Once it lives on a system, it will be there in perpetuity or until like the chain itself makes breaking changes, right? Um, so when ETH moves like to vertical trees, and we we're using the original proofing, you know, you might have to. There might be a new endpoint there. Everything else will be forever. Um, anybody can come in. So permissionless side, anybody can come in and run the infrastructure. So when you think about like a a, and this gets into, and again, we can go down this road in the, in the modular thesis. When you talk about a world of, of thousands or tens of thousands of chains or millions of chains, uh, every chain is beholden. If you take a system, so other systems, Wormhole, Axelar, all of these other systems that exist, they really, what they're, what they're selling is a validator set. They're selling uh, trust, right? And so here's a validator set, our 19 validators, our 75 validators or stake, whatever it is, here's a set of trust that is willing to be priced. And then here's a transport layer on top of that. The problem with that hub and spoke model is that all of the work falls on them basically to do in the deployments and to continue to support. And at any point in time, whether it's them, whether it's Chainlink, whoever it is, they have the ability to say, we will no longer support this chain. It's not economically worth it for us to support this anymore. And there's nothing that chain can do about it. Uh, It always, the power always relies on the economic viability for the central system. With layer zero, when there is an endpoint, Anybody can run that infrastructure forever. There's one app who cares. That application can go and run it itself. If the chain itself wants to run it, it will always be available. Uh, and anybody can run any piece of the stack. And that is like a hugely different. So like we say this very nicely in the white paper layers is the only system that allows the applications uh, in by uh, proxy the chains to reason long-term about both the security and liveness properties of the protocol. Everything else is basically up to date. So all of these other uh, systems are effectively, they're, they're providing something very similar if you take it at face value. They're moving bytes. Everybody's trying to move bytes. The difference is, are you a service provider? Are you reliant on that third party to do things? And is there any case where you don't need to be reliant on that third party? And layers are like layers are lab still does a bunch. We run an executor. We we're like we're, we're active within the network, uh, but you're not reliant on us. Anybody can run that infrastructure. If we disappeared from the face of the earth today, if the government came and and effectively issued a, an order that says you cannot run this anymore, we got censored in one way or another. We cannot affect an application who chooses to basically be separate from that. The protocol will live forever. And it is truly meant to be immutable rails, immutable infrastructure in perpetuity.
1: Yeah, I, I really like, I think that's a really uh, critical thing to to point out. And I think one of the things that people misunderstand about Layer 0 is they maybe see Layer 0 competing directly with like CCTP or Axelar or something like that. Whereas you just, my understanding, red Brand, correct me if I'm wrong, is you belong in a very different place in the stack. And in this sense, yeah. So is, again, is- there's-
0: very easy to confuse because people like to, they want to create a similar mental model. They are selling the model of trust. That is a problem they're trying to solve is is creating a, let's say, trust minimized, the most trust minimized validation set, right? That everyone is trying to solve the verification layer. And we're agnostic to the verification layer. We actually think over time it becomes extremely commoditized down. Uh, we think, uh, one, we were did not think it's practical to be opinionated early on. The model has already changed drastically. You see people shifting from what was uh, considered, you know, there's a very, uh, optimistic messaging was like a very big thing for a while. There's all these different paths of, uh, I, I mean, Nomad's style of optimistic messaging. There's a very different path of like um, going down this route um, and so we've always been like extremely unopinionated. We're not solving, like we don't have a validator set that we're telling you is the right one. You can fit any validator set in. Any of those people I name, Axelar, wormhole, et cetera, can be used within layer zero. Layer zero is focused on the transport layer only. That is the thing that we care about.
1: Cool. Yeah, and I think actually for folks following along at home, maybe one analogy, Brian, and you can push back if this isn't necessarily correct, but there's almost like, There was a discussion a little while ago about almost like uniswap labs the front end and the back end protocol and the back end is just kind of like immutable censorship resistant protocol and then there were different service providing entities in this case uniswap labs which built the front end on top so in this case you uh, layer zero is aspiring to build this sort of back end um, immutable part and I, i love the fact that you really honed in on those sorts of characteristics about what makes blockchain special so If I could maybe try to sum up and then Hart, I want to turn it over to to you to get your sort of vision of the future here. But basically, Brian, what I heard you say was, you know, going back to this analogy of the Internet, um, what what we ultimately had at one point was this kind of discrete uh, sets of uh, different computing networks. And we needed a way to unify all of them because where we're ultimately going to drive to here is the user doesn't really care. They don't care if they're sending work to be done by a computing set at Berkeley or this other computing set. It just needs to feel like this integrated holistic experience, right? But we want to find a way to do that while preserving, like in blockchain land, these really desirable properties of immutability, censorship, resistance, etc. Um, is, that, is that about the right way to describe
0: Yes, only that. I don't think in the early days they they like the focus wasn't on this needs to feel amazing, this needs to feel etc. Right, all of those things came down <laughs> to you know, like economic incentive. Right, the goal was that it was actually useful. There was some net utility for being able to do that. Right, it made the world, the systems, etc. More useful, brought higher utility. So like I I think that kind of is the early focus and everything else, all everything else, like even these days, most web developers don't care about the internet stack. They don't care about the lowest level stuff. Everything just gets abstracted away up once you have a sufficient amount of utility for like worthwhile systems to be built.
1: Absolutely. That's a great point. Yeah. Let's try to think of Well, I was
2: just going to joke for a second, but the idea of, uh, yeah, the era of the information superhighway with, uh, I think that was Al Gore's phrase, and uh, floppy disks, are those all happened before most of our listeners were born, I think. So UX was not the major consideration. <laughs> Mike, yeah. go ahead.
1: No, I was just going to say, um, I completely agree with that. There's a great, uh, there, you can actually go back in time and find some really awesome uh, time magazine cover articles about the information superhighway and some of the visuals that just turned out to not actually make all that much sense but maybe felt intuitive at the time hart i want to ask you the same question we asked brian so we got um sort of brian's vision about being relatively agnostic about um how some of this stuff plays out but providing this sort of low-level transportation layer hart walk us through i've asked you this question on the season before but maybe for the audience that hasn't heard this at this point like Where are we headed in terms of tens, hundreds, thousands of chains? And ultimately, how are those chains going to speak to each other?
2: Yeah. So one thing I think Brian and I definitely do agree on is like, okay, there's going to be many chains, but whether there's like 10 or a million or like 10 million, um, seems very hard to predict and how exactly they play out. Although I do think Brian, we should spend some time trying to like trying to predict it. Um, I think it's an interesting conversation. So we're going to have these chains. We don't exactly know the market structure. The one thing that I think is interesting to push on, um, and I'll keep it at a high level, and then maybe, Brian, we can get more into like the um, how this all works. Um, but this TCIP analogy, uh, I, I've been thinking about this a little bit more recently, and I like it, and I like the idea, and there's definitely this need to connect blockchains at a low level. Um, but we aren't just moving bytes or at least not most of the time. We're also kind of moving money or moving value. And so one of the things I sometimes wonder is if the better analogy is more like connecting banks, uh, like correspondent banking systems that need to be connected uh, versus uh, connecting intranets. Um, And, you know, my, my reasoning or my idea here is if you think of, um, Remittance payments, like uh, Western unions, trying to you're trying to send money from the U.S. to the Philippines in a remittance uh, sense. Um, it's not like every time uh, someone in the U.S. sends money to the Philippines, there's an international wire that gets sent in the banking system. Like Western Union batches together these payments. They make the payments in real time and they send like the international wire equivalent once a day or once a week. Um,
0: and a when you kind of think
2: about for that. Uh, probably, but it doesn't, they don't send a floppy disk, although we're talking a very old school way here too, but I'm just using the example of generally speaking, you, you have something fungible, which is money that like can be fronted on the destination chain. And maybe because of this property, you actually want to, uh, front things, kind of kind of make loans on the destination chain. This is going to lead into like kind of my views on intents. Maybe we want to actually front things on the destination chain and batch them together and verify that settlement more slowly.
0: Yeah, it's just is functionally just a question of how many messages get sent, and in all of these models. Like, there needs to be state basically being moved. And so you say there's a difference of moving money and moving data. And to, to me, it's the same thing. When we when we got into the space originally, they like there were just bridges. There wasn't like universal yeah. message, like it didn't exist. And our our basic thesis early on was. It's the exact same thing. Like moving uh, assets is basically just a subset of that. That was basically the uh, foundation of the OFT. Was was like, why are we? Why are there third party bridges that are doing this when the token itself can literally be the bridge internally? You can move a hundred million rather than paying six, eight, 10, 12 bips to an external bridging provider. The token itself effectively can provide you know a hundred million dollars for the cost of gas. So you're moving hundreds of millions of dollars for sub cent, and then like that layer of efficiency is such a world of difference of needing to rely on on any of this other stuff. So I think fundamentally they are the same thing. It's just like whether whether you're batching or creating this external social contract or like all of this stuff, like you all need a way to move state to be able to do that. Like that's the fundamental problem that's being solved. Um,
2: well, I think that's exactly the conversation I want to have with you, um, which is predicting like how many messages are getting sent. Uh, because I think that really does... Uh, uh it does really uh color like what the end game is for this this multi-chain world here and so like i fully agree you are sending messages in some way shape or form but this question of how many is is very different and maybe that's where we can like lean into this intense thing which is not something i've actually heard you talk about so i'm actually very curious to get your views on this um and so to back up for a second my mental model of how you connect to blockchains we have blockchain a and b um uh, and I want to send, send value between A and B. Um, and one way to do that is you send a message. And this is sort of the, the layer zero approach. Um, although you can push me on this, but uh, send a message from A to B and you want to do that quickly, cheaply, and securely. Um, and then as I understand your worldview as this transport layer, you let the application specify their security properties. Um, but it's still difficult you send that message quickly cheaply and securely this is a hard thing to do all at once
0: so functionally what you're actually doing like you can describe it as a message but really what's happening is some state is written to chain a and its intent is on chain b you need to prove that state right like if you're going to mutate state on chain b based on something that has happened on chain a uh you need to have a couple of things you need to be reasonably certain that chain A is like in a, in a final state or like has reached a a economic uh, position and probabilistic finality such that it would cost more to basically unwind of the ray. Everything is basically based in that. So uh, if you are, you know, uh, issuing credit in a lending protocol and somebody has deposited X here and they want to remove, you know, $50 $50 million on the other side because they deposit $100 million here, you have to be pretty certain that the deposit actually went through and that that's not going to get reorged out because once you give the money on the destination chain, unlike a layer one, which has the ability to roll it back, you have no ability to roll back the state, right? Um, and so really what you're trying to do is prove state to the best possible degree on for a destination mutation based on some state of, of source. And so whether you want to do that by somebody just... Optimistically doing doing a bunch of X on this chain and then saying hey we're we're going to roll back and if I if I did it right I can prove it in the opposite direction or how you if you want to batch it a ton to reduce the the sort of friction or cost of moving that all of those are like viable methods uh to basically reducing the number of times you do that because there is latency and finality on a given source chain and there is cost because you're you're buying block space to basically uh, write the transaction right both of those things are are very um you know batchable or avoidable to, like it's everything with async systems. It's basically a property of the source chain itself. The source chain was, um, you know, a hundred milliseconds and one, one thousandth of a penny. Then you would have zero reason to ever do that. You just send messages immediately. Right. Uh, the, the property that you describe is a property with the underlying source chain, not with the system as an intermediate system.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. So it's like your source chain does not have instant finality. Um, it has some, some time to finality and some maybe probabilistic decay uh, around how that finality looks. Um, and there is also some cost to sending a message, right? So these are the, the, this is the, the environments you're, you're constrained by. So um, the path that I'm super bold up on is this intent-based model where you introduce this third party. Um, and so this third party, we call them a relayer, call it a filler, call it a solver. It doesn't really matter what it is. And and the thing that makes this so interesting, you can't do this in the TCP IP world, but because we're moving value at least most of the time, and we can also talk about whether messaging is going to be moving value or moving um, information in the future, and there is use cases for both, but because you're moving value most of the time, you can actually have this third party, this relayer go and front uh, the user uh, out of their own balance sheet, uh, their, their fill on the destination chain. Um, and you can have this happen in this intent model where the user is filled quickly. And I I wanna go into why I think this is cheap and secure. Users filled quickly, um, and then what the protocol is doing is escrowing their user funds and releasing them back to the user only if that intent is verified as fulfilled. Um, And so uh, go a little bit deeper, but I think we can talk about how this gets around some of your finality constraints. and I think what Layers is doing, you have interesting ideas here too. But I think this sidesteps your finality constraints and can also make things really, really cheap too while maximizing security. It does not avoid messaging. You still need the ability to message. But at the extreme case, I think the amount of messaging you do might be like three or four orders of magnitude lower um, than if you send a message per transaction. Um, so, Yeah. I don't know. I, I can kind of want to go deeper in this, but what's your like, what have you guys been thinking at layer zero around this intent like framework?
0: I think the way that we view it is an intent system can be built on any messaging layer. Functionally, like functionally, intents can't solve interrupt. Intents need interrupt, right? So intense is a optimization on top of it. Yeah, if you're, if you're a tree, it's like atomic swap plus plus basically, right? Like you're basically saying, here is this function for somebody optimistically settling something. And then on the back end, we need to like prove that state. And the LPs are basically taking the risk LPs, like the relayers, providers, the time value of capital. Uh, you know, that's, that's basically what they're pricing. They're pricing needing to keep inventory on these chains or having inventory on chains. And at the time value of capital in terms of the settlement period to get it back in terms of when the message comes back. But the difference is that Interop, like, so if you believe in that world, and that's going to be like a dominant function it means that the there will not be a significant amount of messages that are that are state you'll never have applications that develop uh to have state across multiple blockchains you'll never have things that progress in terms of actual general message passing and i think like the, that's a thesis that we believe in like very 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 strongly so uh, I think like intent systems can live on top of a great interoperability protocol, but intents can't solve the interop piece. And so, uh, intents, as we view it, are like an optimization, uh, you know, a way that you can try to create an optimization in liquidity on top of a system, but you still need the underlying system. And again, the underlying system is like what we're trying to solve for. Intents are just a way to, to batch or to optimistically settle this stuff, but it doesn't solve the underlying problem of like the transport or, um, yeah, of the transport layer at all. And so uh, you can't like the best intent system can't do interop. Um, so we just view it as, as a layer that sits above. It's effectively a bridging layer and you can build any number of bridging layers on top of layers or on top of a messaging protocol. You still need to solve the messaging protocol piece itself um, because you need a way to basically prove the state, Hey, all of this stuff happens. I want to unlock the money for like the person who optimistically settled over there on source. And you're still trusting that, system to basically report back directly. Otherwise, the relayers are all getting rubbed, right? Um, functionally, you still need to be able to prove state on chain B back on chain A, which relies on interop solution.
2: Yeah, I guess where I'd push on is I'm not sure I like agree with the statement It doesn't solve interop. Um, it, it's like, I agree with you that it still has the requirement uh, that there is some underlying messaging system that exists and has to get used in certain cases. But I think in this intent framework we can have a user obviously bridge value um and we can have them bridge value and execute action so it's like uh, this sort of a chain abstraction concept where i want my intent is go and um one example i like to use actually is poker chain this doesn't relate to your past this is just something i i, I bring up where i, I want to have poker chain it's my application where i'm betting poker and i want to control it from my home wallet and so I sign an intent that's like uh, bet bet five bucks on this hand. And I have quick interop that goes and executes that. It's like moves value and executes an action. Um, you could have intense bridge user ops in an account abstraction sense to go sign something. Like on the,
0: I mean, the, the easy counter example is like I'm a I'm a lending protocol that lives on chain. I, I live on some long tail chain, right? I don't have deep liquidity. I don't actually know the global states in the market. I want to go fetch the current price of something and process a liquidation based on that. I want to, uh, I'm now splitting across, uh, my storage, right? My storage lives in, in some other layer. And I want to go fetch something like that can't be. So you can't have an application that actually needs or relies on state or through an action mutate state, or does any of those things in an intent based system. You need a way to prove something has happened on chain a, to be able to trigger it on chain B. um, and again, even even on the intent system, like in all these things, you sign a message that does X. Like you need somebody, some way to say that that thing that you signed is a canonical block on the source chain. Otherwise, uh, you know you can just basically rug endlessly if you're affecting, if you're mutating any other part of the system. So like an account abstraction, um, yes, you can sign a message for yourself doing your own thing on the other chain, which you could just like go and sign it yourself. Um, but if I'm like signing a message that. Is going to mutate an overall system. So executing a trade, uh, I'm, I'm doing. I'm doing something in state. Something needs to to move that and prove that. And again, with with the across model, it's everybody is front loading these transactions. Where the users want to do a, a swap or bridge, like we're giving it over here, we're giving it over here. A bunch of money has been locked over on the source chain. I need some way to say, I fulfilled my duty over here. Please unlock the money on the source chain, right? And if you don't yep. have where that is corrupted the entire system is broken it relies on that functionally like you need that piece for it to be able to exist if you can't prove that you can never have the system
2: yep uh, i i agree with that and i guess there's actually two things i want to push on so one i also fully agree with the like if you want to do a cross-chain lending protocol um there i think i could probably design a weird way where you have people front capital and do this kind of like intent thing but it'd be really capital inefficient. efficient and wouldn't really work. Um, I do agree with you that for those types of applications where you really need to observe state on other chains in almost real time or basically real time, you have to lock state between chains to do things like in a cross-chain lending market, um, you will need to be sending messages between chains. Um, one point that I think we can come back to a little, little bit later uh, when we talk about the structure of this multi-chain endgame is how many applications look like that. Um, this is an open question I have that I'd be just genuinely curious to get your thoughts on, um, versus how many applications are kind of like more roll up specific. Um, so it's kind of one point that I'd like to come back to. And then I think the other thing that's worth sharing with our our listeners is let's, let's say we agree that this intense system is an optimization for, um, uh, types of transactions like bridging or bridging and swapping or whatever else I think it is worth thinking through what the advantages of this optimization are uh, again in the in the vein of what does the end state look like like is this optimization important enough that it's actually a very important layer in and of itself that still requires the um, the messaging layer below it and um, one way, that I think is kind of clarifying to do this concretely. This has been examples I've been using is um, we talk about bridging or bridging and swapping 30 million bucks. So this is something like Stargate does pretty regularly across does too. Um, And what are the overall costs of bridging and swapping 30 million bucks? Um, And right now, if you're going to bridge and swap 30 million bucks over, let's say there's like 10,000 transactions, there's 10,000 bridges that add up to the $30 million. You are going to have 30, like 10,000 deposit transactions on your origin chain and 10,000 fill transactions on your destination chain. That is like unavoidable.
0: That's only in like, that's only in the current method, right? So this is like, functionally, this has been, it's it's kind of the nature of building immutable systems, right? All of these comments that everyone has gone on, on the bridging side, is based on a version of Stargate that's like two full years old, right? Immutable, can never be changed, like across, just was upgraded again. Like there's all of these upgrade paths along the way to like try to improve it. Stargate doesn't have that. Immutable from day one has never changed. Like the only real optimization that you're describing is batching, right? Functionally, you're saying, here's a system for taking the underlying base messages and saying the cost, the large bulk of Stargate costs right now comes from doing messaging. It comes from like, oh, you have to write an ETH transaction and write this transaction. So if you're sending 50 messages, you're writing 50 ETH transactions, and that's very expensive. And if you can batch that into a single transaction, it will be cheaper. Like I 100% agree. And I think, like, most systems are moving this. You see batching, like, becoming much more commonplace in general. Um, but, it, like, that's, again, that's a bridging layer, right? That's, that's a, a Stargate thing. It's a thing that lives above. For us, like, layers are very focused on, like, the transport layer itself, not the bridging layer. We think bridging is just a special case of generic messaging.
2: Well, that might be something that we talk about more over the episode, too. But just go back for a second. So, first of all, across also until, like, this past week, it, it was 18 months old our code on chain hadn't changed either. Uh, all the optimizations were on the like off-chain fills um, that, that have happened, like all purely just relayers competing to fill users. Um, so, so yeah, but w- what I was actually talking about that I think you do agree with in the bridging or swapping use case, and users want to move value between chains. In any way, like baseline of any system, there is going to be a, a transaction a user has to make to deposit their assets on the origin chain. And there's going to be a transaction that the protocol or a relay or somebody has to make to fill the user on the destination chain. That is like unavoidable gas costs. You can't actually move value between chains without them. You agree with that?
0: Yes. There's a transfer on both sides.
2: There's a transfer on both sides, right? So you agree with that. So then the question is okay, well, if we're moving 30 million bucks over the course of the day a cor- uh, through 10,000 transactions, and it sounds like you also generally agree, what is the most effective, cheapest way? To move that thirty million dollars over ten thousand transactions, um, what's the most effective way to do that?
0: Is it the most effective, or is it the safest? Right? There's like, are you, what 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 are we optimizing for? Is like an overall system.
1: Hey, everyone. Wanted to give a big shout out to today's title sponsor, Say. Now, I want to talk to you guys a little bit about why I think Say is cool from a design standpoint, a big problem that it solves for ETH devs out there, and then some cool stuff that Say has coming up. The reason I like Say from an architecture perspective is, again, it's a very fast blockchain parallelization, all of that stuff. But Say has essentially been custom building block space, which is for consumer apps and DEXs. Now, they have some very cool features which enable that. So Twin Turbo Consensus, Optimistic Parallelization, SayDB. All of this stuff allows you to reduce the time to finality, make for very, very fast transactions. So if you're building a consumer app or a DEX, this is basically the blockchain for you. If you've been building in the EVM, you love the EVM, but there are some restrictions about it that don't support your app. So maybe you can't do fast enough transactions or it's not parallelized, whatever it is, you can now take all of that stuff that you built. You don't have to start from scratch and you can build it on Say. Now recently they've launched V2, but also public devnet. So the way that you can follow that and keep up to date is go and follow Say Network on Twitter. All right thanks guys i was actually gonna say that's where i'm sort of shaking out as someone who's less in the weeds uh, the two of you maybe to try to like sum up what i think we're describing here is i actually think we're describing a pretty holistic system where we need to move uh value and data across multiple different chains and there's uh, ultimately at the end state even though like Hart, you and i have talked quite a bit about this intense sort of framework where maybe uh, sort of I don't want to say middlemen, but like kind of uh, facilitators, right, can like front capital, and make things a lot sort of cheaper and more efficient. Ultimately, these these things still need to be reconciled on chain. And that's, I think, what the the sort of lower layer of the stack that, that Brian is describing. And I guess, like, honestly, just hearing about it, I hadn't really thought about this in these terms. So always dangerous to think out loud, <laughs> I could be wrong. But it seems like there's a, a little bit of a spectrum here where it actually might be safer to do like a purely on-chain type system where we're not relying on these intermediaries to front uh, capital. But what we might be sacrificing there is it's like, it's not the most efficient uh, thing to do, especially if a lot of these transactions want to get originated on Ethereum. There's obviously a lot of gas costs there. And so we want to figure out, right? Like how much responsibility do we want to give to this optimization layer where maybe they could make things a little bit more user-friendly, a little bit cheaper, but like Hart, something you and I have also talked about is like, do we ultimately, this is, we're going to at some point talk about this during this episode, but like, is that a desirable end state for crypto, right? That we have a couple of large market makers sitting in the middle facilitating a whole bunch of these transactions. And I think, yeah. and that's a conversation to be Yeah,
0: Functionally, what you're sacrificing is, is, is lightness, right? Like when, when Stargate was built. And again, I, I like the goal should be to talk about like layers are an interop, not like Stargate versus And the ending bridging is interesting but i think it's like an application on top of messaging which is like less interesting than the messaging layer itself but like when stargate was built there was this beauty in like uniswap right uniswap has been deployed in a piece of immutable code that that is like never going to change it. everything was on chain you knew how to reason about everything nobody could kill the system there was no external party there was no like a government cannot come down and shut it uh, shut it down there can't be like a cease and desist it was hey this was this really like cypherpunk thing that is going to exist and will be free markets forever and like that in itself is like extremely elegant when stargate was built the goal of stargate was like these are pools of liquidity that will exist anybody can freely execute a trade there is no like reliance uh outside of that basically it's meant to be like a closed immutable system that has pools of liquidity it's very simple just like add here and subtract there and i think what we've seen over the last couple of years is the market for certain types of transactions, where there's a bridging, where there's swapping, whatever it is, the market is saying, uh, and maybe the market will go back because it usually says this and then gets hacked and like security issues come up or liveness issues come up. And they say, oh, actually like those things mattered or those things didn't matter right over time. uh, It just depends on like the frequency of these events. But I, I think what the market has shown is like, they're willing, if they're not sacrificing security, they're willing to sacrifice liveness guarantees for a cheaper cost. And I think that functionally is where like the overall market has moved. I think it is, we will take some set of uh, decreasing liveness guarantees in order to have a more efficient execution on a per transaction basis. And I think you see a lot of things moving that way, whether it's RFQ systems, is Unix, is like a lot of things have moved down. And that's just like philosophically, whether I agree with that or not, or whether or not I think it's like the right thing, or we're just reinventing like another slightly different version of like existing financial system. It doesn't matter. that Right now, that's what the market is voting for is that we will sacrifice degrees of liveness for this type of transaction if cost is cheaper. And that that just like is what it is.
2: And Brian, I agree with that. And I think like the the narrative arc here is super interesting. And I think even looking at Uniswap here, it it, as just the example, Uniswap's done this itself, right? It went from like purely on-chain in a single chain version to you know swapx and their RFQ system um and you know my my mental model for why this has happened is because of this multi chain world where now that you have multiple chains that are asynchronous it's actually like you don't have the same liveness and execution uh, guarantees because you have these asynchronous systems that you're trying to unite and it's messy um and you know what i think will happen is what you're saying we were going to have Bunch of off-chain actors that are the unifying force of these different chains, um, and then that's going to evolve five years from now into something else.
0: So this this is where I think it gets like extremely dangerous, and this is why I care so much about censorship resistance in a protocol. So. One of the biggest problems I have with most other messaging protocols today is that there is, there is no form of censorship resistance. You have this hub and spoke model, and there's no one-to-one relationship between a transaction on source and a transaction on destination. And what that means is like packets can be dropped, which is you can see is important in like a vote going through, right? You have a government election or any vote happening. Uh, there is no guarantee with any message that is written on source, with any existing system that those packets will be delivered on destination chain. Like with the layer zero model, everything is non sort enforced directly in this basically transfer layer, which means that you cannot deliver packet 17 until packet 15 has been like verified and is ready to be delivered, which means you can, if you're censoring a single message, you stop the wheel of time for the, for the entire uh, pathway all of it. And so it's like you deliver everything and there's one person that exists in the world who's willing to deliver these or you do not deliver anything. There is no intermediary of like, hey, we were told because of this, we're going to start dropping packets. Like these people are no longer allowed to like transact across this. We don't want their messages to go. through Every other system that can be allowed. But I think the scarier part for me, the much scarier part is like, you think about HFT in the current world. Like HFT at least is reasonably meritocratic if you can even say that in the sense that it is like the fastest actor gets to the exchange and front runs the transaction and this is a cost that's like borne by the consumer you think about it kind of like mev but there's there's a wide sort of spread of actors who are, are trying to race for this and so they're economically incentivized just doing the first at the transport layer if you don't have censorship resistance you have the ability to reorder every single transaction which means every transaction going through a line now if I had a hundred transactions going through and they each have an MEV of one and I have like an extractable surface of a hundred, I can reorder those transactions to create like an extractable surface of like 250. I can say, hey, actually... I have more external incentive by filling my friend Citadel, who I have this custom relationship with, and I'm just going to fill all of these priority orders with them. They're going to sit at a higher priority of packet than any normal person coming from the source chain. It doesn't matter what order they submitted to. doesn't matter that they were later in the queue. I'm going to fill them on the destination side because I'm more economically incentivized to do. I think you're going to end up with a world that potentially is a worse financial system than the world that we have today because of a lot of this. And so I think if you're going to go down that route, you should care deeply, deeply, deeply about the properties of the underlying messaging layer. And I don't think enough people do right now.
2: So, Brian, I think there's a lot to unpack there. Um, and we should talk about all our trade-offs here. I want to go back, though, on the censorship resistance point for a second here, too, because like I care a lot about this as well. However, I think it's a nuanced question. And even in how I understand the layer zero design, um, in my opinion, and you might find this a spicy take, but the point of censorship resistance moves off of the layer zero protocol to the application itself. Because the application, as I understand it in layer zero, sets their own security stack. And depending on how they upgrade or change that, that can be a point where they could
1: get messed with. Hey everyone, this episode is brought to you by Uniswap, delivering the best on-chain trading experience Period, bar none in all crypto. Here's how I would divide the protocol today. There's a web part, a mobile part, and an extension part. You can say goodbye to the pop-up wallet extension. It's just not great from a UX perspective. Now what they've delivered is this nice, clean sidebar where you can just very easily track swaps, sign transactions, send or receive crypto anywhere. Just a huge UX improvement. On the web part of it, huge improvements here. You can buy and sell 700 plus tokens at your price, on your terms. And they've got limit orders, which are powered by Uniswap X, and there's gasless. They've also got real-time charts, transaction logs, pool data, project information, all this cool stuff that just really improves your UX trading on the web. And again, all of this is powered by the smartest protocol in terms of Uniswap or Uniswap X. Click the link at the bottom. Uniswap extension is in alpha right now, and we'll see what you can do about getting you moved up that list. Thank you very much, Uniswap.
0: So is like the way that I view it is Ethereum is meant to be censorship resistant. USDC contract on top of Ethereum can do whatever it wants. It can have a blacklist. It can do whatever it wants internally. That should live at the application layer. I actually like very much the protocol. If you have censorship enabled at the transport layer, it will get censored over a long enough period of time, whether it's the nation states, whether it's the regulation, whatever, that can live at the application layer. And applications should comply with regulation. That should be a thing that naturally happens over time. You should not have it at the technology layer in the same way it's, yeah.
2: But I guess this is just the point that I want to push on. It's just, I I, I find like saying layer zero solves censorship resistance here. I find it a little bit too much. It pushes it to the application and solving censorship resistance at that layer is extremely difficult depending on what you are and how you do.
0: I mean, that's like saying Ethereum isn't censorship resistant because Circle can censor transactions or addresses. Like the base level protocol can still be censorship resistant with the application being able to do whatever it wants.
1: If I could jump in here and maybe just try to sum this up for the listeners who like i I think there's philosophically this is going to be a challenge that crypto ultimately ends up running into it's actually something that i've thought quite a bit about which is when crypto becomes undeniable from the standpoint of governments where do governments like ultimately fit into these systems that we're building right like because you could have this like total like yeah you know bitcoin sticks it to the man and the governments are going to crumble and we're going to rise in our. i've like never viewed it like that uh you know i've always viewed it as like ultimately governments are important stakeholders and they're going to need to fit in. These systems need to conform to laws. And I think what we're asking ourselves here is at what layer of the stack do we need to conform to laws? And I think there's uh, an interesting debate to be had about whether or not that should happen at the very base layer that layer zero operates on versus maybe like the application layer where people can decide based on their sort of jurisdiction, which is, I feel like what we're, what we're getting at. I want to, do my moderator duties a little bit here and give you guys a little bit of time to kind of wrap this up and then I want to push us into uh, some other areas of the conversation which is um just the amount of like a the applications that you see in the future like how much do they need interoperability across these many different layers and um what you know are we heading to this world of we just uh, spoke with Ilya uh, Polushkin of near in the last episode he described this world of unbridging right where in his sense, he was sort of building a stack that allowed canonical assets to exist on the chain where they were issued and actually minimize the amount of bridging. Whereas, I don't know, uh, you know, Brian, in, in, in your view, if actually we're heading towards a world where there, we're mostly going to be interacting with non-canonical or wrapped versions of assets, but we want to make sure that those are delivered and are structured as safely as they possibly can be. Sorry, I just front ran the next part of this conversation, but so I want to give you guys a chance to wrap up the censorship resistant part here, and then I'm going to push us into the next part of the conversation.
2: Well, I think your part on the censorship resistance was well said, and I think actually Brian and I might actually agree on that. You know, like layer zero not being censorship resistance, fine. Applications still have a job to figure out, fine. It's complicated. Cool. Like, I think that that's fair. Um, I do think we should talk about the HFT points that Brian brought up too, if if that's cool.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to be a hard nose here and say, let's, let's try to get through those the next like sort of minute or minute and a half or so. And then we can get into the, okay. Going real fast. So here's my high level. It's like, there are some trade-offs here
2: and this isn't, might be hard to get through in a minute. We'll try, um, $30 million. I want to bridge a day over 10,000 transactions. Um, one approach. I send a message for every one of those transactions. That has a cost. I have to send that at least 10,000 times. Brian rightfully says, Hey, if we can batch that together, great. But if you batch it together, you have a slower user fill experience. So the intent system, what we do, so what the, the idea is, I think, is you have off-chain liquidity. So this is the HFT analogy. You have off-chain liquidity that is going to fill those users on a per-transaction basis. And those off-chain actors can compete on speed or on price or on both. And those off-chain actors fill the user quickly. They can actually choose to take finality risk which is part of the reason why cross is able to fill users much much faster than chain finality which is pretty cool um but it's it's fully born by these off-chain actors they can fill users quickly and then we can batch together their repayments and repay them in batches every hour which means we could support those 10,000 transactions by sending a total of like 100 messages over the system over the course of a day What are our trade-offs here? Our trade-offs here is that we have off-chain actors that have to get paid for the loan they're making to extend to users. The advantage is we send way fewer messages. The other disadvantage to Brian's point is that there is an off-chain component here. And if that off-chain component doesn't show up, users don't get filled. So to put numbers around this, right? If I want to like the loan, if there's a $30 million of one hour loans, that costs you $300 uh, if you have a 10% assumed interest rate. So I'm spending $300 a day on like my interest component of my loans. And I'm saving from going from 10,000 messages to 150 messages a day. You can also secure those messages like slowly, which maybe makes it safer and cheaper and that's that's kind of what a cross does and you kind of have this trade-off here so this trade-off space where i'm able to very quickly fill users with off-chain liquidity cheaply and quickly and securely and i get to send way fewer messages i think that's a pretty good trade-off but I think it is worth like highlighting Brian's points here around like, wait, is this going to be like a worse version of like Citadel and Jump, just front-running users?
0: No, but that's right? again, that's that's purely at the bridging layer, which is which separate. So there's a couple of things. One, I, you said Layer Zero is not censorship resistant, but the application is. Layer Zero is censorship resistant, but the application basically can add layers of censorship to it if it wants. Did right? I just
2: misspeak, though? Yeah, yeah you just. I'm just sorry. sorry. I am mis- yeah, um, sorry.
0: Mis- the way, you're basically shifting messaging to say rather than starting with the user and ending over there, uh, you do it, and off-chain entity fills, and then you basically message back, which again is a fine optimization to Mac uh to make. What it relies on is that the component coming back still meets all of those things. If the component coming back, which in your case is Uma doesn't fulfill its needs or something happens, then basically the relayers all get rugged. They bear all risk of the messaging system and of the source chain finality, right? Then they're just going to price that accordingly. And that's fine. I think you can, again, walk down the censorship resistant route if there were avenues for censorship within UMA and UMA was mandated in one way or another to do X or not process orders from these people, like a lot less people will be able to, the amount that that system can withhold external pressures strictly determines the longevity of the system right should it be a world or a system that says people from nigeria are not able to basically interact with this at all people like x people like y right where does that actually live and if a cross was saying fine, we actually want these things to happen, but the underlying transport layer was now being censored or corrupted, then that would be like a very big problem for the application on top, right? And in this case, you guys are, are both of them. So you have like some levers of control or let's say like a mirrored, um, probably set of regulatory jurisdictions or restrictions based on where you are. But for every other application building on top of these systems, like they should care. The whole point should be decoupling the transport layer And the constraints on the transfer layer really minimizing the underlying constraints so that the application can do those. And I think Ethereum, again, does this extremely, extremely well, um, right? Like maybe Vitalik is going to fill you for your, whatever tornado cash transaction, or maybe uh, some of these validators are not processing uh, sanctioned, uh, you know, sanctioned addresses, but like others are going to, as long as there is a part of the system who's willing to fulfill it and feels that they're meeting their sort of regulatory needs, then the system as a whole processes. And that's not what you're getting with most other transport layers. And I think you and other people should like very much care about that. And I don't think people do. Um, and I think that is very likely to play out in a very negative sense on a long time horizon.
2: So look, I very much agree with like this. Hey, if you can get censored at some level, like if you can get censored, you're screwed, right? It's not good. Um, and I, I fully agree with you. Uh, I think that there's like a longer debate that we don't have here about whether Uma can be censored or not, which I don't want to do now. And Mike, you look like you're about to cut us off. Gentlemen,
1: what? I'm going to, I'm going to push us. I want to push us into the okay. Dice, uh, Okay, let's, go, and push go. us go. into the next statement here. Um, everyone should go back and listen to that. I actually feel really lucky to be on this. It was so much like I'd, there are very interesting trade-offs of just sort of risk, security, uh, cost, like very, very interesting conversation. But I want to move on to this, I want to move on to this question where like when we think about the end state for applications. What is what are going to be the requirements for Interop? And this is a really difficult part of the conversation because it's so critical. Ultimately, the underlying infrastructure needs to support the application. One of the, the challenges with crypto as it exists today is that we don't have many applications with traditional definition of product market fit. And you know, Brian, to use your maybe to pick up on something that you brought up with why uh, censorship resistance is so important is like you could imagine. Let's just I'm picking a. An app out of thin- like Ave, which is deployed across multiple different uh, multiple different chains. You know, if you if you have a very important vote that's happening on ETH main chain and votes are getting passed from different chains, like what you wouldn't want someone to be able to do is like hold that up. I guess the the, the counter to that might be in the future. Maybe we imagine that um, most there we don't think about uh, deployments across different chains in the same way that we do today. And maybe like Ave exists primarily in this like ethereum sort of trust zone which has largely solved interoperability within one another do you see what i'm saying so like i i would be very curious to get um, a sense from the two of you about how you think about the needs for interoperability from the application layer in a, in a fully mature environment for blockchains
0: who do you want to start with and where 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 do you want to start with? That? whoever feels the bravest whoever feels the bravest
2: so okay like the ave example is pretty interesting Um, because I think Aave is an example where what can't you do on Aave? And Brian brought this up earlier. Like, what can't you do that I want to do? I want to deposit like ETH on Aave on Ethereum and borrow OP tokens on Aave on Optimism, like this cross-chain thing here. So cool. There's a need for, I think, messaging to make that happen. This would be like a cross-chain lending market. What I really don't know is how many applications there are like that. Um, And I think the alternative world, and I think it's almost clearest to think about this with like games or something like that, where if I'm running uh, like a on-chain game, I probably want to have my own blockchain, my own roll-up that I'm just controlling uh, to, I control the performance functions and I'm just doing stuff within my world. Like I don't really need to talk to other blockchains to progress my game, at least the vast, vast majority of the time. What I do need to do is have people be able to move gas and move assets on my chain. Um, and I need that to be cheap and smooth and seamless. So, so to, it,
0: I, I yeah, spent a bunch man. of time talking to like, you know, almost every large gaming studio in this space. It's, it's something we're like pretty active in. Uh, Yeah, most like they want their own execution environment that's extremely low fee, and they basically have control over block space. Effectively, that's what they want. But the other thing that they very much want, every single one of them is access to liquidity across all of the broader markets. So they want to be able to take their assets and access Ethereum liquidity. They want to be able to list on Blur on OpenSea. Uh, They want to be able to have people buy and sell from other markets. Um, These NFTs themselves, uh, most of them want to be able to come out in game assets, want to be able to go where they are the highest source of liquidity uh, or have a process for dealing between them. And so I I think on the gaming side, there is um, like, it's a very clear example where the majority of execution happens on a, on a single chain. I actually argue with this a lot. My co-founder, his argument, my argument is usually like, what more can we do in, in, in sort of single chain atomic environments? Uh, How can we verticalize? And his argument is, that 99.99% of all the world's compute today still happens on single machines, but the internet is still the internet, right? Like functionally, like you you, you can argue as much as you want that this chain or the majority of execution is going to happen in a single chain. And I will very much agree with you. Uh, There still needs to be this layer uh, of the internet for anything of any measure of complexity to be built.
2: Yeah, but it still gets interesting and nuanced right okay so we agree that you're gonna have the vast majority of like compute or execution happening on a single chain um and you're gonna have some number of single chains uh and they exist and that number could be 10 it could be 10 million don't know right um we also agree that there are some applications that require like locking state between these chains and this would be like your cross-chain lending market or something like that where I really can't do my thing on this other chain until I verify uh, that something happened on my origin chain, um, and then if we also okay, so then going to the gaming example, so we have then this concept of there's something of value that we want to be able to trade on other chains, um, and I guess really two forms: fungible value and non-fungible value, right? And so then the the difference here is that's not like a synchronous thing. That's like an asynchronous thing. Like as long as I can trade my asset, I'm, I'm happy. And I, I think like this is where I get open-minded about what does that end state look like? Like can you, so, do you, how much messaging is there involved in that kind of end state? And where I look at from at least the fungible perspective, I think the intent perspective works very well. I'm much less clear on the non-fungible side.
0: I mean, basically every every application that exists on the internet is effectively async, right? So, like, what like if you look at early any early application built was just like this monolithic structure. It sat in a single server. You would host the server. You put the server in a data center, whatever, and everything would run on this one machine. But as applications get more and more complex, uh, as user needs change, as single environments are not, look at any modern application being built today. You have all of these web services, you have all of these like microservices you're using, whether it's different databases, whether it's things for compute, whether it's things for, you know, all of these different structures, storage, all of this, doesn't matter. Everything moves out to the bounds of basically optimizing the specific thing. And because using that for the thing that it's good at is much better than using a generic system, right? For for almost everything. Every web app is built this way today. Every major application you ever use is built this way today. And so uh, if the thesis is that, this application will live on Ethereum and ethereum will be able to do everything it needs to do extremely well uh then that you know that's a thesis that you could could have or I guess it's a belief that you could have I think the most likely scenario is that you have applications that increase in orders of magnitude of complexity and that you have storage live in Arweave or IPFS or Filecoin or wherever it is. And they take that storage, uh, whatever it is, data from that, bundle it up through a really complex computation on Solana and roll the end state of value, whatever the result of that is to Ethereum and it lives there, right? You can see this world evolving in a bunch of every separate data and settlement and execution. And all of these things start to basically bifurcate. Uh, and I think as you have applications move down that route, we're going to move from a model that is like, a single very naive structure that exists today uh to something that is measures of complexity i think if you uh if you believe that what we're doing blockchains themselves will scale real financial applications on chain that can service billions of people like that will have to happen it will just have to there is no way you have a single monolithic structure that that deals with all of this there's not any any chance that that happens and so uh, it really is a bet on, do you think applications will stay at the same level of complexity they are now? Or do you think that uh, they will be forced, like bridging is moving towards, to search for optimizations within the application execution? Will you be able to pay you know, $30 or $100 for a trade or a loan or everything forever for every single one? Or will logic and, and execution, all of these things be shifted elsewhere?
2: I think, Brian, that, like that is the core question here. So um, uh, we're saying that we are going to connect blockchains and there is some latency and cost to connecting blockchains for sending messages. We agree. If, though, we are primarily moving value, then there is an approach here where you actually fill users yep. with off-chain liquidity
0: Right? I don't think and we'll can, only be using moving value though.
2: But I, I agree with you. I agree with you that we won't only be moving value, but it's kind of like one of those questions where is it like 80% of messaging or is it like 10% of messaging, right? Uh, or 80, 80% of- what? I
0: guess what marketing? is the result of the question, right? Let's say it's 80% well, or 10%. What does the end state look like? You still need a messenger layer that maintains the properties that you want or else the layer above just gets corrupted. So like, what what are you- what? In either bound of the answer, what changes in the world? I'm saying in either bound of the answer, what changes with the messaging layer underneath?
2: Oh, sh- sure. You have a messaging layer underneath. But like I mean, the saying, whole well, point what changes, here is what, like...
0: The, the, the properties geez. of the messaging layer changes and desire... <laughs> like,
2: Brian, the point of this is like what does Interop look like, right? So I think Interop
1: looks very different. You still There's have a question a is,
0: layer. is like what does bridging look like or what does messaging look like?
1: Can, can I can I help in here? I one thing that I I actually find myself asking and maybe maybe the user is thinking as well is there's like there there's also a question here about I, I think maybe something that we haven't directly asked but um it is ultimately are most of the financial uh are most of the use cases of blockchains going to be primarily financial and if that is the case like is moving value like and and all of the complicated abstractions and entities that like move that value ultimately going to be where a lot of the value ends up getting extracted from these systems or is it this sort of message passing system which we're agreeing i think everyone agrees here that we're going to need these general message passing systems but where i sense a little bit of debate is like where that ultimately gets abstract or like uh maybe to skip ahead, like who gets to extract that value? Even, and so,
0: even if it's entirely financial though, the question is, will the applica- will the financial applications that live and exist be only on a single chain or will they leverage sort of the orthogonal benefits or trade-offs or optimizations of many chains? Like that's the ultimate structure. If they're all going to be monolithic and it's all going to be value transfer, then you have one world. But I, I, I view, again, I view these things as, is like optimizations down a path, right? You're reducing the cost for like the end consumer is 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 like Robinhood shifting uh, zero from from $10 trades to free trades, but you get front run like net good. Does the majority of the world's volume like route through Robinhood, or or why doesn't it? Right? Why isn't that like the end thing? Right? You can have you can shift this around a lot of different ways, and I think there are. Totally fine trade-offs at the bridging layer, at the swapping layer, all of that. You can make a abundant set of trade-offs for where cost lives, where value is extracted, how to drive down the end cost to the consumer, but that's all reliant on having the underlying piece. Right. And so like, yeah.
2: So Brian, I I wanna I wanna agree with you. Like, like I just wanna like frame this as like what what's the most interesting conversation we can have here? There is going to be a messaging layer. Layer zero is going to build a valuable business. I agree with you, right? Um, But I think it's really interesting to try to hypothesize how big that business is. And I guess my question here is like, okay, so you guys are doing generalized messaging. It's going to happen. Great. And when I talk about this optimization layer, I'm like, well, the business that I'm trying to build with across is this, if you want to call it an optimization layer, that's trying to very efficiently move value between blockchains. And I want to know how big this business is. I want to know how much value is running through this business that's optimized to move value. And um, like where there is potential tension is if my business of optimizing moving value between blockchains um, is like captures a lot of value and then doesn't produce that many messages. It ultimately makes the layer zero business like less big. Doesn't mean it's not huge. And that's where we're maybe getting tense here. But I, I want to understand wh- like, so, what this NC no, looks actually, like.
0: like. I don't care about the design. It's not, the, it's not even me saying like layer zero has to be the end transport layer. It's that we're talking about two different layers. Like you're like, you are want to expose like why a cross is great and at the layer above. And I'm saying a cross is just like a thing that can be built on top of layer zero. Like how that layer is defined, I think is is much more overall. And so they're like down the path. If you, if you go down the path of, okay, Bridging is like the number one use case and moving value is the number one use case. The question is, will you need external liquidity to basically move that, right? And that's that's functionally what it is. It's if we're going and we say everything is value transfer, then all of the, native, all of the assets are just going to go to native issues anyways, right? Like Circle, CCDP, Layer Zero, OFT, all of this says you don't need a bridge at all. Now you can move again, a hundred million dollars, a billion dollars, whatever you want for just the cost of gas. And that's it. And you can batch that as much as you want. You can add any amount of latency. You can have Circle fill on the other side and then batch it back into a single message. All of these things can be done. And there is no need for any external fail or bridging layer if it's all done at uh, the native asset layer anyways.
2: Well, hold on. I Actually, that's not true. Like across is cheaper and faster than Circle, uh, circle CC.
0: Circle has its own constraints that it's built in. It could fill on the other side, no problem.
1: All right. I want to try to structure this here because, uh, you know, for, for the audience here, right? Uh, one of my favorite movies of all time is Thank You for Not Smoking. And there's a guy who's a, he's a, um, he's I uh, blank on the word. He's one of those good people that goes, to, he's a lobbyist. And he, he has this debate with his son and, uh, you know, it's chocolate or vanilla ice cream better. And he's like, oh, you didn't convince me. He's like, I'm not trying to convince you. I'm trying to convince them. So hart and brian i want to give you guys each a couple minutes here make your pitch to the audience i think um part of the reason why there's so much like i'm going to call friendly competition between the two of you is like both of you guys are building monster businesses both of you guys sit at sort of a different layer in the stack and there's a sort of natural competition right but like hey like i think my layer is super important and like creating a ton of value here so i want to give you guys a chance to like instead of going over some of the technical specifics like kind of make the pitch to the audience for like where why you guys sit is like valuable and gonna uh do a good job of like kind of capturing some of the value that you're creating. And then I've still got two important questions that I want to get to here. So we could just do, um, Brian, if you want to, if you want to take the lead here, heart, you can go. And then, uh, I've got two more questions and so we can wrap up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sure. So again, I, I'm not, I'm not actually trying to convince you or anybody that what we're building will be like the most valuable, like, again the the bride you'd never
1: make it as a lobbyist my friend name, no. yeah that's <laughs> the, o- the only thing that 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 is, the game.
0: <laughs> is, is how do you build the thing that has the highest maximum utility and i if i build my piece of the stack right pieces like across can exist again across intense all of it cannot solve the actual messaging layer and you need that layer back and so if we want to move up the stack and say Here's how bridging will look. Here's how cross-chain DEXs will look. Here's how cross-chain lending protocols can look like. We can talk the application layer, but I actually think it's like there's a huge amount of indecision around what the messaging layer looks like. And if that's done wrong, everything else is broken and corrupted anyways, right? And like you never scale. If that's done wrong, you never scale to a million blockchains and you never uh, have censorship rails and immutable rails and like all of those things that matter. Uh, My point is, if you don't get that right, you can't get any of the other stuff right anyways, because it can all be corrupted. It can all be basically exploited or, you know, five plus billion dollars of hacks in like all of this stuff happens. It happens not actually because of validation layer. There's not a single of the last 15 hacks. Not one of them has been because of a malicious validator set. Not one. Every single one of them has been because of contract upgrades for the large part. Wormhole, $350 million uh, hack, contract upgrade. A uh, $1.8 billion critical bug, contract upgrade. Another $1.8 billion critical bug, contract bu- upgrade. Nomad's hack, contract upgrade. Socket's hack, contract upgrade, and la- Half of the people in the industry are still like, these are the systems we should be People just don't care. I, I hear, you know, Hart has spent a lot of time criticizing uh, Layer Zero for many different things, but I- I've never once heard any criticism around that, which has been historically the biggest vector by far for every other protocol. Uh, and so as we like walk down... I, I think it's a much more interesting debate. And naturally, it's because of the thing that I work on and actually talking about that layer and why it matters, because if that layer is wrong, nothing else matters. Like if we all move, there was this, you know, I don't, I don't want to pick on BNB chain too much, but there was a joke in the early days of, of BSC There was like the cap show with all nine of the validators being CZ, right? And it was just like every face with CZ, right? And it's like, uh, like, are we okay with a world that is, a chain that looks like that versus a chain that looks like, uh, you know, like Ethereum or like many of these others. Do we care about Bitcoin? Do we care about the underlying layer? Do we care about the application? So like, are we here to talk about how the application layer gets built? Are we here to talk about like how the actual interop system gets built underneath? How does that actually work? And I think that like those rails, if that's not the conversation, we just want to talk about what is the best way to like uh, have a bridge that lives on top of that. We can have that conversation, but I actually think it's, has not been decided at all. And I would be much more interested in hearing across, uh, or heart in general, say, here's why this is the underlying layer. Here's why I think application should build on this or that. Here's why we support uh, XERC20 as like a standard and X and Y and Z, right? Here's why we're trying to move to those things. I think that's uh, far more. Uh, impactful conversation on like a two-year time horizon and everything else gets solved on like a five-year time horizon. Because if you get that part wrong, you end up with a very different world. You end up with not Ethereum. You end up with insert long tail chain here that has six validators and people saying, okay, you know, it's, it's doing what we want. It's doing the compute. Um,
2: All right. So yeah, so I'll try to be a lobbyist here. I am trying to convince you that like this layer uh, is important. Because I actually don't think, Brian, people think this way. That's that's my difference here. I actually think most of our ecosystem is thinking that the transport layer where you're working is the thing that we've all got to figure out and spend our time thinking about, which is true. I agree. But I, I think the this layer of how we send value between blockchains is going to be where 70, 80, 90% of all the messaging happens or all the, the interop happens. I shouldn't use the word messaging. And so I am trying to make the point that The way we are going to connect blockchains, 80, 90% of that is going to be moving value and figuring out how to move value the most efficient, cheapest, secure way, fastest way possible is a big deal. And I don't think people are thinking this way. And I'm very, very convinced that this intent framework that we've been working on for a while is the answer to how you are going to move value cheaply and quickly and efficiently between blockchains. And I agree that it does require underlying some messaging layers to exist. Um, And that's where we're at. Um, So yeah, Mike, that's my summary.
1: No, I really appreciate it from both you guys. Like uh, the the passion just like comes across uh, from both of you. And that's exactly who we want building um, these systems. So I just really appreciate both your guys' perspectives there. I've got one, I've got two. Maybe we can end on these two questions, which is one, maybe a, a slightly related question and Frankly, we could have done a whole episode on kind of like monolithic and modular and ultimately like what the, even that, those two words for me are starting to, they're starting to blend a little bit. And I'm sort of thinking about it from the perspective, of like how tightly or distinct uh, systems sort of coupled. But um, one thing that I would love to get your take on, Brian, because we've been talking about this a good amount this season, is what is your view on, you know, when we zoom out into this end state where applications have some amount, right? Some amount, we might disagree on some of the particulars, but of demand to interoperate. A lot of what people want in terms of interoperability today is like, I want to trade these assets, right? Like I want to trade uh, Ethereum, but I want to trade it on Optimism where it's cheap, for instance. And so as soon as you kind of move into that world, you're dealing with mostly bridged versions of assets. And I wanted to get your perspective here on when you think about the future of those 10 chains or a hundred or a thousand, it sounds like you have a very modular vision of the future where like even more so than today, we're decoupling the you know, traditional constructions of blockchain. So in this world, are we mostly dealing with wrapped versions of assets or are we mostly going to try to minimize the amount of bridging and deal with um, assets on their source chains that I guess improve the... Uh, the capabilities of the underlying protocols. Does that make sense?
0: I mean, I I think one of the earliest articles that I wrote is like why wrapped assets suck, right? Wrapped assets basically shift the risk from a user, basically says, we're taking the risk from the LPs right? You swap in Uniswap, LPs bear the risk of the Uniswap protocol. A user executes a swap, they get their asset on the other side, they never think about it again. A wrapped asset basically says we're shifting risk from LPs to the end user. And the end user is holding that asset, carries risk in perpetuity. As long as the asset exists, if the underlying is broken, everything's rugged, the asset's now worth zero. Right? And this has happened like many, many, many times. So I think it's a purely worst model of the underlying asset. I don't think native assets have proliferated nearly as quickly as I thought, because it is a risk for Circle to extend to some us uh, some untrusted state machine that it doesn't know They can have some issue and tether and all these others and have that basically impact the overall liquidity. And so uh, I have always been a huge proponent of native assets. I think it's why OFT is so compelling. I think that has been why a lot of these other things have been. I think naturally you will see, you will not deal with wrapped assets. You will have Uh, A single issuer or protocol who sort of owns where its token goes and owns how that token is moved and takes away the cost of moving those assets such that uh, you don't need to rely on sort of third party bridging solutions. You don't have to inherit other risk. You don't have to have wrapped assets or you have this other uh, sort of structure that lives under and is carrying risk.
2: Brian, this 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 is actually something I wanted to ask you because one of the things we very much agreed on, uh, like the first time we met, is that wrapped assets are bad, and like I, I'm like a canonical ax, asset maximalist um, here. But but this is where I get I, I want to understand better why you think OFTs are not like a version of wrapped assets because like within the OFT protocol, you can mint, you can use the bridge if you control the bridge, the verification logic, you can mint unrestricted assets so Only for, i am I kind mean, of the, curious good
0: yeah the, i mean the token that's just a parameter that the token sets right the token can basically rate limit and do you can do anything that you want it's just saying existing structure is i have a token on chain a it's going to get moved to chain b you have two options right you can use a third party who basically wraps it bridges it so you have, you have your transport layer and you have another bridging structure built on top of it and typically you don't even own that contract on the destination side it's a wrapped asset it can't it's like vanilla erc 20 that's coming out on the other side you don't have any controls over what it is and you're basically reliant on this external system and they're charging you rent they're charging you 6 8 10 12 bips typically those have been like historic bridging rates right uh now you have the ability to say i'm still g- you're going between two chains. There's some element of messaging and there's going to be some risk within that messaging. Some There's some security property there that you're inheriting. Uh, but the difference is you get to own it. You get to set it yourself entirely. You own the end contract. You can set any of the rate limits you want. You can set any parameter that you want with that and you pay zero rent to anybody else. Now, the cost of moving the asset goes from 6, 8, 10, 12 bips on $30 million a day, like you're saying, down to zero bips uh, for unlimited amounts or for whatever you said is a ray limited amount
1: i've got a, a follow-up i've got a follow-up question sorry i just want to buzz it. i've got a follow-up question for you brian which is the implications though of uh bridge minimum the uh canon being a canonical asset maxi or bridge minimalism is that you are then if you want to interact with an asset that has network effects like ethereum you are now now subject to the constraints of ethereum protocol as it exists today, namely paying high gas costs.
0: Native, native assets, you will always, always, always have to have wrapped assets. You don't have a single entity who can mm-hmm. issue it. There's That's it. totally different from most other assets that exist, whether it be stable coins, whether it be any protocol that's, you know, look at um, any any DEX, anything that has a token that exists and has its chain moving around, even even like uh, Lido, uh, State D, there's, you know, all these different versions have ways to move these things to different chains.
1: Got it. Final question, Brian, I'm going to ask it to you. Hart, I'm going to ask it to you as well, because uh, we've we've talked about this before, but I want to get your three episodes in a sort of updated view. Um, Brian, can you give us a, you know, one of the things that Hart and I have been asking this season is like, as we move forward into uh, this sort of more multi-chain endgame, it, it's, it's sort of apparent that we're going to have to make compromises. In, in some way, shape or form, right? I think that's just like kind of pragmatic, realistic approach. Maybe you could even like, look at the example of Uniswap. The exit, like the Uniswap sort of V1 was this cypherpunk sort of dream where every, the whole logic existed on chain. And there was like, well, actually, as we need to scale, ultimately, we have to make some tough decisions about which are the important parts of the logic to live on chain or components of the protocol to keep the underlying core premise. But if we want to scale this to being able to support you know, however many millions of trades, within then we have to move some stuff off chain or whatever that is. So I guess one of the questions that Hart and I have been asking ourselves this season is like, what where does the line kind of end? Like, what would we define as a successful end to this whole crypto experiment? Curious to get your closing thoughts. there.
0: I mean, what does the end state look like? That's like good. What is a good outcome is basically the question. I mean, a good outcome is immutable rails that can be used by anybody effectively i think that's why anybody who got into the space like a decade plus ago we all got in for this like very strong ethos driven right it should be uh money that cannot be censored and controlled by some central actor whether it be government whether anybody else it should be uh you should own right this, you know, this concept of like self-sovereignty uh and the ability of like actually having control of real ownership of the asset and the, the you know these uh permissionless structures, anybody can run, anybody can be a part of, true decentralization, like all of these things matter a lot. And I think uh, you're right that likely more and more and more compromises are going to get taken. And I think we're seeing a huge shift towards higher and higher degrees of centralization. I think liveness is being traded off very consistently. And I think like there's there's a different view and it, this, is, this is the problem that I have is, is there's two views. There's one, which is the current topology And then there's two, what is the actual architecture? And this is like in the very early days of Bitcoin or Ethereum and anyone else, like reasonably small validator set, like heavily, you know, not greatly decentralized yet early on. Many times like known actors are running these, all of these, and they develop into what it is today. And the difference is how it was actually built. It was built and you could criticize current topology for how it exists right now. But architecture, you couldn't criticize because the architecture was actually built to be able to scale into something that is. And this is like the evolution. And I think the problem is that people are taking things that have similar topology right now and equating them and saying, these are the same, or this one's even better because current topology is better. When the underlying architecture is infinitely more corruptible and way worse for end state. I think those compromises that we're taking along the way that many people, and it's not not just in messages it's in all systems, are that higher and higher degrees of centralization Uh, in ways that actually matter and being treated as as equivalent to a system that is like secure, uh, but sacrifices like liveness, right? So uh, let's say equally centralized systems one is uh, secure but has risks of liveness. I would say like a cross falls into this, right? Is like it's it's sacrificing some element of liveness, but it basically has the same measure of of security as the underlying messaging system. So in this case, Uma it, like matches UMA's security, sacrifices some liveness issues if if any of these things were happening. And so like that's the design decision. I think more and more things are going down that path, but they're being equated to systems that are like equally uh, or let's say two separate centralized systems one is secure and sacrifices liveness the one is equally centralized but is not secure at all and i think people are treating those as the exact same system and i think that is like the fundamental broken part and this is why i argue against like uh intellectual dishonesty and like bad faith arguing a lot of times i think those things are being treated as completely equal in a way when they're just not and i think it's happening uh, sort of across the whole industry and i think it's leading us uh, and people will care more or again, post more hacks, post more bad things. Like you can only sacrifice security for a certain period of time until that like comes back to haunt you. Um, and I think we've seen that just many, many, many times in the space over the last, you know, 11 years. Um, so yeah, uh, that t- to me, that is the biggest thing that is like an issue right now. And I wish uh, we could talk another hour on because I think it matters a lot.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Brian.
2: Hart, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I love Brian's passion around that point. Like, truly, man. Um, and I I actually think we probably agree more than, more than you might think around all that stuff um, around the centralization risks. I, I do think the debates here, though, are pretty nuanced. Like, one of the things I worry about for, from Layer Zero's perspective is by pushing these decisions to the application layer, you're going to have some applications that make what are going to be, in my opinion really bad security trade-offs and you know you as an unopinionated layer like you can't actually have an opinion about their security trade-offs but like you're gonna see people using your stack in shitty ways and that's that that brings up another really interesting debate is like should you almost be paternalistic about what you can and can't do with your stack I don't know. And that's a whole other conversation, right?
1: But
0: I think it's an important conversation though. I think we've taken the stance of Ethereum side. Like, do you think Vitalik loved ICO season or dog coins or any of these other things being like the primary driver of Ethereum for a very long time, right? Is it his place to say, what is a good application? What is a bad application? What is like a good use of block space? And what, I mean, maybe block space you can have an opinion on, but but I think the point is if you build something that's a low, less, low enough level primitive and expressive in us. It will be used in bad ways, but like that—that's that, actually a feature, not a bug. That's a good thing. That's a good property of a system.
2: You know, man. I guess, like, I very much agree with that. But I think that Vitalik is like super special this way, where he does offer an opinion in a very measured way. Right? He sort of does shepherd. It's like this benevolent dictator type stuff that he does, kind of shepherd the the the, the space in a certain direction. Um, without being controlling. And yeah, I think that is a very interesting thing that I think you're going to face um, as layer zero grows, where there's going to be use cases and you might be in a position where you have to sort of offer your personal opinion about how shitty or not shitty they are. But like, I, let's leave that as... I have yeah.
0: personal opinions on all of it. The protocol should not be opinionated, right? The design of the protocol and the way you architect it and the way of what you allow and disallow should not be opinionated at all.
2: It, look, I, I respect you for making that decision. There are like some of uh, I, your competitors at the messaging layer, the ones that I, I think this model of the, of uh, CCIP and art like shipping their validator set or like selling their validator set is a kind of interesting model, but they're actually making in that, in that decision or in their whole strategy, they're making a different decision where they are opinionated about like what security should be. And that's literally what they're selling. And so I think that's just truly a very interesting strategic decision that these projects are taking like you versus them and i don't necessarily think there's a right answer but mike i want to answer your question because you're like hey what's yeah well you should think that like that's that's very clear like back to you being a lobbyist you should absolutely think that being an opinion it is the right answer and uh, yeah i i can see the argument on the other side um, mike back to your question though end state for interop i just think we want Fast, cheap, and secure interoperability. Um, that's it. A lot of Brian's concerns around censorship resistance, I think loop into security. You're ultimately not secure if you can be censored. Uh, if Yeah, that, that, that will break you in the end. Um, fast, cheap, and secure interop is what we want. Um, again, the thing that I still want to keep using the rest of our season of the podcast to, to dig into is how much of interop is going to be value transfer versus messaging? Because I think it does does influence or kind of like color what the end state looks like. Um, So,
1: yeah. And you know what, guys, it's a really, uh, I almost wish we're getting to something really interesting right at the end there, which I think is ultimately coming for all protocols. Like Brian, I, I also really love the ideals of like the protocol. I have opinions, but the protocol, necessarily shouldn't and I think if you look around like one of the big takeaways at least from my perspective and the deck season that I did with uh Dan Dan Robinson you know he described Uniswap as having a very similar approach actually they sort of viewed themselves as a platform since day one but probably you know at some point um it, it is difficult to escape an opinion as well I'm like maybe instead of like interjecting my own opinion like it would be really interesting and informative for play everyone to look at the evolution of something like Google right like where Google the original sort of value proposition of Google is to like, Brian, exactly what you just described. Um, it's like, how can we just, we don't want to have an opinion. We're going to index the our, our data in such a way that it's really easy to be accessible to anyone over time, you know, not to make political commentary, but we've all seen the search results from Gemini, which they've clearly deviated from their mission. And we could have a debate about whether or not that's a pro or a con, but it's probably worth it for all protocol designers. Like I think part of the reason why we're in crypto today is that we agree with that idea that like, Hey, we don't actually like this. And with these, there are certain things that be it financial rails or uh passage for communication, that they should just be these kind of neutral systems that are not opinionated. So it's a worthwhile question to ask maybe for the rest of the season about how can we maintain those values with increasing external pressure? So
0: I I completely agree. And I think from day one, like Ryan and I are extremely adversarial in terms of how we think about design. From day one, every decision is through the lens of if we, layers or labs, are maximally malicious or disappear for whatever reason, one reason or another, how does a protocol withstand those things? And I think you have to, and I think you're absolutely right down the trajectory of Google. Like if there was this immutable version of Google that everybody could return to and use, immutable version of whatever, you know, whatever AI system early on that everybody could return to and use then that will exist forever. And there's no way to basically change and corrupt that. I think that should be the goal for everybody. If you're building something within there, you want to give people using it and building on top an ability to reason about security and liveness. Again, you can make trade-offs on either of those sections, but you need to give them the ability to reason about that. If they cannot reason about the long-term security and liveness of a protocol, uh, there it's, it's going to end very, very badly. One way or another protocols are going to go out of business and these centralized uh, you know, systems that are there now, these service providers are going to go down and every application built on top will just be dead. And if they built their contracts immutable, they will have no way to change that or do anything or basically modify, complete redeploy. If the security property can be changed, you see it with every one of these contract upgrades, they will suffer. And so like, ultimately, I think everybody should focus on if you're building infrastructure at all, through that lens, at least of that, nobody should need to rely on us one way or another. You don't need to rely on the Uniswap team. You rely on their front end, right? Uniswap Labs does something. It builds something around the protocol that is accretive to the protocol. Uh, but the protocol itself doesn't care. It's agnostic.
2: Mm. Brian, I, I want to like pay you a compliment in the sense that I agree with you that the way the Layer 0 architecture is, is designed, this Google problem that Mike's describing, like I don't think is possible. Like they just, you, you guys can't, it's an unopinionated un- and can't be captured. I, I do think though, that what is really fascinating and what's been clarifying on this conversation for me is now it really is up to the application. So unlike your Uniswap example, where in Uniswap V1, V2, V3, deployed to Ethereum blockchain, like can't be changed and it just works. Here, the application sets their security concerns for interop and in any reasonable application, there needs to be a way to change them because the interop landscape isn't settled. And so we now have like a lot of trust we're putting in the application, which is a reasonable trade-off to make, but also kind of sucks because like there's going to be some shitty decisions
1: made. It, it Maybe just because I know we got to wind down here. What we're describing is, you know, we did a season of the show on cosmos and the app chain stack and it is a pronounced difference in between how the cosmos ecosystem approaches decision making versus how ethereum approaches decision making in that ethereum views itself as this immutable protocol which tries to push complexity away to the edges whereas cosmos will just have an opinion like this type of mev is good or bad and you can look at many different examples of this from osmosis saying front running is bad back running is good we are going to internalize back running revenue for the protocol uh or you know, Ethereum will kind of debate. There's this there's this debate around issuance on the Ethereum protocol. Is it good? Should we cap it? Whatever. And in stride, you had the liquid staking module where they were like, Yep, twenty five percent feels good. It it they're ultimately like someone is gonna have to make decisions, right? Uh so I think that's a good question to keep asking about the, the rest of the season about where does the decision making sit in the stack? So I think guys, um I know we got to wrap up here. I really appreciate uh both of you doing this this was a ton of fun brian thank you so much man for coming on the show if folks want to find out more about you the work that you're doing at layer zero what's the best way for that tap?
0: twitter for sure i think the majority of the space lives on twitter we live on twitter pretty frequently uh i think uh yeah definitely definitely the best space to follow anything new happening
1: awesome all right guys um appreciate you both uh brian this was a ton of fun heart and i will see you uh next week for our next episode cheers guys hey you you both. hey everyone want to give a final shout out to this episode's title sponsor say now there are a whole bunch of really exciting reasons to be building on say v2 outside of just parallelization i want you to head over to say.io to looking into building on their public devnet again click the link at the bottom of this episode and head over to say.io start building something today